0: Let me invite you to turn in your Bible to John chapter 21. This morning we're going to be reading and then receiving from the first 14 verses. So John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, beginning in verse 1, chapter 21, that after this, Jesus revealed Himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and He revealed Himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And They said to him, We'll go with you. And so they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? And they answered Him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now... They were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far off from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, a hundred and fifty-three of them, And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. And this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised. From the dead. So let's pray together. O oh Lord, even as you met the disciples here, drawing them into yourself, it's all our desire all our hope, all our prayer, that You would draw us into Yourself nearer and nearer and nearer through the preaching of Your Word. You are alive. You've caused us to live. Your book is living. Awaken our hearts. Help us to know You. Help us to know you more. Make the book to live in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So is there anybody willing to confess this morning to being a Christian procrastinator? A Christian procrastinator. Anyone slow that is, not just to talk like a saint, but to go on to act like a saint. Anyone heavy afoot in following Jesus? Does anyone gather in Christian company here or elsewhere? You hear the Word of Christ, and as you hear the Word of Christ, you think to yourself, yes, yes, that's right. That's just what I needed to hear today. I, mean, I, don't want, to, I want to get more of that. I want to show more of that. I want to show more of Him in my life. And then Monday comes. And a week or two or three or more, they pass by. And uh, it's not that it's all been for naught. Trust me, it hasn't all been for naught. But you find yourself more or less in the same place as you were a few weeks prior. The customary way that you've lived your life is still just customary. You want more. You want to be transformed. You you want in the depths of your soul to be awakened. To really live. You want to be consistently and affectionately obedient to Christ. And that desire is really, really good. That desire is so good. That is resurrection life in you. Resurrection life. It really does want to live. It does not want to just exist. So why? Why? are we so often just existing and not really living for Christ? Why are we so slow to spin truth into life? If the disciples can gather on Easter to hear from Pastor Jesus about a peace to combat all fear and a power to carry out his commission in the world and a presentation that should serve to remove any and all doubts that they ever had about him only to go on with locked doors and fishing boats, something has not settled the way it's supposed to in their hearts. That kind of procrastination is often the result of fumbling the resurrection. Why do we get so stirred up here? Only to resettle in the concerns of the world, the cares of the world, soon as the book is closed, soon as service is ended. Why do we fall back instead of pressing forward for Christ? Why do we fall back? into our old habits, like we have nothing new and vital and living to bring into everything that we are and do. Why do we go on as before? Often because His resurrection is for us more a doctrine to confess than it is a truth to apply. That's not good. That's not good. The good news this morning is that John has good news for us. And it's this, that Jesus lives, and that the risen Jesus keeps his finger on the pulse of his life that's inside of us. He lives to meet us where we are, to show us, who He is, and to love us forward and ultimately to make us all that we really do desire to be, which is spiritually alive and spiritually profitable for the sake of Christ. He lives to do that. So, let's come to our text into verse 1. Let's just see Jesus being revealed in the apostles' catch of fish. You see John connects the prior text to this one. This is the next appearance of the risen Jesus to at least seven of his disciples. And in verse 3, it's Peter who decides to go fishing, which sounds like a good idea, a fine idea to all the rest of them. Sure, why not? Let's do that. So he leads, and they follow, but to where? What I mean is, there's all kinds of debate about what they do here. Have they done what's right? Are they doing the right thing in this passage? Is it okay that they're doing what they're doing? Haven't they just been commissioned by the risen Lord? Receive the Holy Spirit. Just as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. Haven't they just been commissioned by Him? And they've decided to go fishing for fish instead of souls? Or is it simply that this is their job? This is what they did, a lot of them. They were fishermen. So this is just their job, and they have to eat. They have maybe families that they need to provide for. And so while they wait on the Holy Spirit to be poured out, at Pentecost they return to what's normal and needful. As I said, the interpretations about their decision here vary widely. Some scold them for this. Some justify them, excuse them. At this point, some take kind of a middle road or a middle path, and that's kind of the road that I take also. I don't think that there's anything wrong with them going fishing per se. In fact, in this text, there doesn't seem to be any reproof from Jesus, as there will be in the final passage of the book. But at the same time then, we should probably see that they have not gone fishing as they should. Again, I don't think there's anything wrong with their going fishing. If something is wrong, it's that they're fishing as they did formerly. They're fishing sort of unaware of the risen Jesus that they've just seen in the passage just prior to this one. Just let me put it this way. It's almost like they've just kind of returned to their jobs as if the resurrection were a thing to confess and not something to apply in a similar way, the risen Jesus had appeared in that locked room, you remember that, and told them not to fear. And a week after he's told them not to fear, in that locked room, what do we find? We find them in a room, again, with the doors locked. So they were slow to apply, to apply the peace and the purpose and the power and the presence of the risen Christ with them. Now, granted, it's an interesting situation that they're in. Right? It's like he's, he's died, he's risen, but he has not ascended yet. It's a strange place to be in. It's a new situation. It's the start of a new epic in redemptive history. And so I think we can give them a lot of grace for what they're doing here in this passage. It's the same grace, by the way, even though we're post-ascension now, it's the same grace that you and I need every day. How often have we gathered like this to receive from the Word of Christ, from the living Christ, and just as soon as we're done, it's just back to real life. Real life. Back to real life, back to the old norm, back to our day jobs, back to the boat, per usual. We return to our apartments, we return to our friends. We return to play. We return to food or to the lab. We return to the office. We go back to the classroom. We arrive at Monday through Saturday without a greater mind to Jesus. Or a greater, more obvious love for Jesus or even sometimes the the slightest alteration in how we conduct ourselves in this world. The problem is not that we don't know that He lives. We know He lives. The problem is not that we don't say that He lives, that we wouldn't confess that. I think if you're a Christian, you would confess He lives. The problem is that we so little apply it. The problem is that we so little appropriate it. Well, Brian, what does it look like to apply the resurrection of Jesus in our own lives? If you want to jot these down, I just encourage you to go read the book of Acts. Maybe this afternoon, take you a couple hours. Maybe you go spend some time with the Apostle Paul in Romans chapters 5, 6, 7, 8 application of the risen Christ in those chapters. Maybe you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. Half of that letter is Christ is risen. Here's what it means for you, for us, for ministry. Philippians chapter 3 also. It's another one you can go and just read there what it means. 1 Corinthians 15. Paul, again, telling you, why why am I putting my life on the line for the sake of the Gospel if Christ isn't raised from the dead? Application. Maybe you just go meditate on post-resurrection Lazarus in John 11 and John 12 and what his whole life is about. Or as it relates to your job, work, I can tell you about a time when I was a barista. Now, I know for a lot of you, that's really impossible to imagine that I could have been a barista, but not even 10 years ago. Not even 10 years ago, I was a barista at Starbucks in Boston or just outside of Boston. Kind of crazy to think, right? Green apron and everything. And as I went in uh, to be interviewed, to be a barista, a pastorista, as my kids went on to call me, the lady, uh, sweet as she was, she examined my application. She saw where I was from and what I had done and my degrees and all these kinds of things. And she basically said in no uncertain terms, you know that you cannot preach. You know you cannot preach while you're on the job, right? And I told my eventual boss and uh, friend, of course. But, but, I also, cannot separate who I now am and what I ever do from Jesus. I can't do it. I am a Christian. So every word I say, every person I greet, every drink I make will carry a distinct and apparent purpose. The good of souls, like the eternal good of souls, and the glory of Jesus, okay? And she was like, we need help, so okay. (laughs) Now, uh, that's a single example that I wish were more characteristic of my life. More consuming of my whole life. But the big idea is well expressed, I think, in a recent song by Sky Peterson, Andrew Peterson's daughter. We ought to be able to say to a Christian, and other Christians ought to be able to say to us, I see the resurrection in you. I see the resurrection in you. And so, if there's anything we might be able to say about these fishermen, it's just that we might not see the resurrection in them as immediately and splendidly as we want and as we will, again, if you go and read the book of Acts. Beloved, if Christ would not be kept in by the tomb, nor kept out by our locked doors, we just need to believe that he lives to be in every part of our lives throughout all of life. He wants to be in every part of your life, throughout your life. How might that change your living today? I want you to notice that a return to our old ways, life apart from Christ, will not profit us anything. Just as he said in John 15, Apart from me, you can do nothing. There's an object lesson in their abject failure. You see, it's night, and in that night, they net zero. (laughs) These guys are bass masters, okay? Uh, they, They are professional fishermen. They've got the logos, the hats, everything, okay? They've got the endorsements. They're on ESPN on Sunday mornings, They're professional fishermen. And they've done everything that professional fishermen know how to do, would do, in order to catch some fish, and they've caught absolutely nothing. And I'm sure their catching nothing is just as much of the Lord as the success that's about to come. When they've lost their way, as men at odds to some degree with God's resurrection purpose the way the truth and the life jesus shows up to reset their course let me tell you jesus loves to show up for his ghosting people you know ghosting right you text someone and you call someone and they're like you don't exist to me okay you don't exist anymore so I'm not going to text you back. I'm not going to return your call. Okay? Jesus loves to show up for His ghosting people to remind us that we can't really live. We cannot really live without Him. Again, apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing that is that's really divine or that's really supernatural. He's the vine. We're the branches. You Remember that? And so here, he shows up on the shore just at the break of day like a star for navigating their way back to him. Now, John tells us in verse 4 that they might have seen him there on the shore, but at any rate, they did not know at this point that it was Jesus. And so it appears, and this is very important, that he means for them to recognize him through his words and through his work. That's how they're going to come to know. It's like He's getting them accustomed to the way He'll be revealed to them once He has departed for good to the throne of God above, which speaks directly to you and me because you and I, we live on that side of the ascension. So starting in verse 5, He calls out to them, word, children, children, Do you have any fish? It's a rather humiliating question to professional fishermen (laughs) from this unidentified man on the shore. It's also interesting that he calls out to them as children here instead of, say, brothers, which is a more customary way of identifying them. Perhaps there is the implication there that they've got some growing up to do. And if so, there's the added comfort that in Jesus we don't have a father figure who's content to be absent from his family or absent from our formation or absent from our fruitfulness. But at any rate, in knowing that he's called them to be fishers of men, what a question to be asked by Jesus. So you just hear Jesus asking you this. Christian, do you have any fish? Church... Do you have any souls on the line, in the net? Jesus is prone to making our inabilities visible before making his abilities visible. He makes our weakness visible and then he shows us his strength. He shows us our lack and then he shows us his supply. He shows us our limits then he shows us his infiniteness. He shows us our need, and then he reveals his glory. That's how he loves to do it. And to their credit, they steer clear of the kind of exaggerations that fishermen are wont to make, right? The fish only gets bigger over time. They're honest about their efforts. They just say, no, we haven't caught a thing, not so much as we might use for bait. For all their know how, no fish. Okay. Into the fisherman's despair, this UFO, this unidentified fishing onlooker, sounds weird, right? (laughs) Gives a directional command with a daring promise. A directional command with a daring promise. Cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some understatement. They had to be thinking, that's really strange. But hey, at this point, why not? Maybe he has a better perspective than we do. And so they do it, they cast their net where the man said, and instantly they're having to fight to keep the boat afloat. They were unable to haul in the net due to the quantity and the weight of the haul in the net. Now just drop this here, it is wild how things change when we're committed to fishing with Jesus as directed by Jesus. That matters. I'm inclined to think these fish were present the entire night. They're all around the boat. And though the professionals did all they knew how to do, the net stayed empty. It wasn't until the risen Jesus appeared, until they did as He directed, until they acted upon His promise, that the fish were then driven by Christ into the net and pulled ashore. that has to have some bearing on gospel ministry. What we think might work best to gather up all the fish, given current trends in our culture today, will never be as good or mighty or profitable. I don't care about the results as a ministry that casts its net strictly and prayerfully by the Word of God and the promise of Jesus Christ. The church today needs to realize that we have not been left to ourselves in fishing for souls. Sometimes I think we actually prefer it that way. We have not been left to ourselves In this labor. And to labor as if we had been left to ourselves is to labor, as you see in the text, in a dreadful kind of night. John is very intentional about light and dark, night and day. So, our greatest concern in ministry should not be how many were caught. But how revelatory was Jesus in the casting? How much glory did Jesus get in the catching? The main goal in gospel ministry should be, oh God, help us to honor the risen Lord. We trust you to bring the fish. Just let Christ be glorified. We cannot cave there. That's why in verse 7, as soon as the catch is made, it's all but forgotten. Do you see that? This is the catch of a lifetime. As soon as it's made, it's over. It's in the background. It becomes background material as the recognition of Jesus comes to the fore. John tells Peter, it is the Lord. (laughs) And the following scene is just tremendous. I love it. Maybe my favorite in John. I don't know how much sense it makes. No one else does what Peter does. I feel like they're all sitting in the boat like, dude, we have a boat. We'll just take the boat. We're not that far off. A hundred yards by sea isn't that far by boat. But it's quite a distance if you're trying to swim. It's like a football field. At sea. Just terrifying to me. If Peter's not dressed down for the swim, he's dressed up. You see that? He adds weight. And then he throws himself, John says, into the sea. Such was Peter's desperate love for Jesus. Now, Some men in here may be too manly to talk like that, but we shouldn't be. If Peter was anything, he was a man's man who above all was Christ's man. As quickly as Jesus was revealed, nothing was keeping Peter from getting to Jesus. Not the sea, not the weight of his clothes, Not the the distance, not the yardage, not the pragmatism. We got a boat, Peter. Okay, not the pragmatism, not the catch of a lifetime, apparently not even really his own wits. Jesus was there. (laughs) Jesus was the prize. Jesus, only Jesus. Now that, is an application of the resurrection. Nothing above Jesus. All obstacles to getting to Jesus, they're nothing. Just get me there. What do I got to go through to get to Him? That's resurrection life. What keeps you this morning from being right there? What holds you back? What... Obstacles threaten to drown out, weigh down, despair by distance or decorum. Such a heart and such a love and such a desperate passion for Jesus to get to Jesus. Is it past denials? Peter had those. Didn't keep him in the boat. Was it previous procrastinations? You hear and you hear and you hear and your life's not being changed by what you hear. I can't get out of that boat and go to Him like that. Is it lesser loves? Golly, we have so many lesser loves than the love we ought to have for Jesus and they keep us from Him. Whatever it is, I want you to be encouraged both by the gracious persistence of Jesus with us and the rabid passion of Peter for Jesus to take on whatever we must to hold just greater and greater and greater communion with the risen Jesus. Jesus has been revealed In the apostles' catch of fish. And now they eagerly, earnestly, with all their hearts, race to him, draw near to him. So that now he's known, he's revealed, he's known ashore in the Lord's supper for breakfast gathering. Always a good lesson. Having made it to Jesus, they find, verse 9, Jesus is ready to feed them. Jesus is ready to nourish them after so many labors in the night. Dear ones, (laughs) there is no coming to Christ. There is no coming to Christ, but He has resources in hand to meet our need and fill us up again. Maybe you can, but I cannot. I cannot think of a time in the Bible that a believer comes to Jesus without leaving with some benefit from Jesus. It is a demonic lie that the trek to Jesus, the journey to Jesus, from sin to Jesus, from failure to Jesus from suffering to Jesus, from despair to Jesus, from doubt to Jesus, from faintness to Jesus, from sleep to Jesus, from comforts to Jesus, from concerns and cares of the world that just threaten to swallow us up to Jesus. It is a lie from hell that that trek is not worth it in the end. That it will prove pointless. Pointless not enough to rise from where you are to get to where He is, to get to Him. If you come to Jesus, as these do right here in our text, Jesus will fill you up. Jesus will satisfy you. He will give you Himself. And it will be enough. More than enough. More than anything the world could give you. And we should note how he cares for their stomachs as well as their souls. As a breakfast guy, I love that he's made breakfast for them. And as John remembers it, he provides more food for thought. For instance, in verse 10, Jesus not only calls on them to supply some of the catch, but some of their catch. Did you notice that in the passage? Jesus gives them credit for the catch. Bring some of the fish that you caught. (laughs) I love that. So, while we've said this often, it bears repeating that Jesus views us far more graciously and generously than we tend to view ourselves or one another. It's clear, isn't it? It's clear that Jesus created the catch. This is, a miracle of Jesus. To Him be all the glory. We're not the sovereign Lord of creation or redemption. Jesus is. And yet, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, going into verse, or to into chapter 6, as we work together with Him, Jesus freely credits His working to our account. It's like Coley dunking a basketball because I've picked her up from ground to goal. And I don't always say to her when we do this, I don't always say to her, <laughs> see what I've done for you? You had no shot of dunking that basketball. What do I say? I say, Coley You did it. You want to do it again? There's a lesson in it for us. Grace encourages endurance. Let's do it again in ministry. We'll always go back and say, The Lord has done great things for us. But it's wonderfully consoling that knowing that full well, the Lord still sees all we do for His sake and has no problem commending our labors on His account. As they go from fishing for fish to fishing for souls, and that sea becomes really, really rough out there in the world, that right there is going to be a stabilizer for them. It's going to be so stabilizing for them. I see you. Good job. (laughs) Show me what you've caught. And let's just rejoice together. Jesus says. Jesus is known by His encouraging charity. And in light of it, Peter, apparently in much better shape, and I gave him credit for in the previous chapters, goes to the boat, he hops aboard, and hauls, get this, hauls the previously unliftable net ashore, having just completed a 100-yard jaunt at sea. Maybe another miracle. <laughs> okay. And as he does, Jesus is revealed. By yet another miracle, supported by detail as a fact. It's in Luke chapter 5 that we're told of another miraculous catch of fish. But with this note, that as they were hauling in all this fish, what was happening to the nets? They were breaking. They were breaking. But on this occasion, John says, verse 11, they've got all this fish in the net. They pull it ashore. Peter's pulling it ashore. And the net was not torn. Now, maybe the catch wasn't as big as it was in Luke chapter 5. But I think it was still big enough to tear the net. Otherwise, why would John think the fact significant enough to mention? The net was not torn. Should have been, but it wasn't. This was not natural. It was super. Natural And what's more, that the net was not torn here as it was before the resurrection is probably an intentional revelation by Jesus. Like he's saying, I am able, 1 Corinthians 15, I am able to keep your labors from being in vain. It's not that he wasn't before. It's just that his resurrection uniquely settles that. Nothing that we undertake at the word of the risen Christ will ultimately fall through, net torn, won't be falling through without a full reward. He's risen from the dead. And we're to know this, is what Paul says in that passage, 1 Corinthians 15. Again, that in the Lord our labors are not in vain. Man, it can feel like it. But they are not in vain. And they're not in vain because He lives to hold His nets together. He holds all things together. He holds the universe together is what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1. And will He suffer His nets to be torn apart? whatever the weight of our ministry, and we can pray, should pray, must pray, that it's a supernaturally substantial weight. Whatever it is, Jesus can handle it. Hold it together. Bring it ashore. As one put it, the church's resources, with the risen Christ in her midst, are never overstrained. Do you believe that? Are we applying the resurrection there? We're not apostles, as these men were, but as Christians, as a church, are we working together with Jesus under the premise that His power to meet the need of all He gives us is sufficient? He's able, Jesus is able to do it. And are we then engaging daily in an earnest ministry, seeking at least by prayer as many souls as can be found? Bring them in, Lord. If Christ came to you, to us, at the end of a week to examine our labors, how many would He find prayed for? how many would He find sought out? How many would He find us doing good to? How many evangelized? How many counseled? How many called into action? How many invited out of the sea and into the safe harbor that is Jesus Christ? How many numbered newly amongst the saints? How many equipped? for the work of ministry? How many equipped for fishing, not for fish, but for souls? Would our nets be full? What cause we do have to look to Jesus for souls and also for strength? (laughs) Well, characteristic of John you see he details the catch as an eyewitness to it their net was he says full of large, no minnows in there, okay, full of large fish 153 of them they are fishermen after all point this really occurred It really occurred. And it's revelatory of Jesus. Along with His encouraging charity, there's also His encouraging power for His people. To profit His people. And it makes its unmistakable impression upon them. He invites them in verses 12 and 13 to come and eat bread and fish from His hosting hand And there's an interesting sidebar in there. John says they knew it was the Lord, but they didn't dare ask Him who it was. That's interesting. If they knew it was Jesus, why would they want to ask about His identity, much less find it daring to do so? Again, the roughness of the account only proves the truthfulness, the factualness of the account. John's just telling it as it was. Clearly, clearly, the resurrection has done something mysterious to Jesus' appearance. There is no doubt that it's Him. He's still bearing the wounds. Thomas, you saw earlier in the passage, the former skeptic, the great skeptic, is at this breakfast. We hear nothing from Thomas. I'm inclined to believe the glorified body puts it beyond our present capacity to identify a person merely with these old eyes. But regardless, you can thank God that their hearts see. Their hearts are alive. Their hearts are operative in knowing it's Jesus. Unable to see Him as they do now in glory, they yet know it's Him by His words and by His works. He seems to be working us towards. Blessed are those who have not seen, yet have believed. There is something, isn't there? In His words. In His works. As we have them in Scripture, as we read them in Scripture, as we hear them in Scripture, as we fellowship around them, as we work together with Him, where we just, don't we, we just know, we just know, there's the Lord. The Lord is there. And He's with us. In fact, I think in arguments to be made from this passage that our very existence and continuance as His people, is a revelation, if you will. And as John says in verse 14, that Jesus is apparently, obviously, absolutely raised from the dead. It says, this passage, this appearance, Lord knows where we might have been or, or turned or ended up if He were actually dead. Or, if alive... He didn't care to show up wherever we are to lead us back to himself. Lord knows where we'd be. It's an interesting study. What does each appearance of the risen Jesus contribute to our faith from day to day? It seems like they're getting at certain things, each one of them. The first, in short, confirms he's the Savior of sinners. It's that His work on the cross is in truth. God's wise method of saving us from sin and death and hell and for new resurrection, eternal life. The second appearance reassures us. You remember this from a week ago? Reassures us of His peace and His purpose and His power. And as with the third appearance, also of His presence with us to remove all doubt. Make us believe, really, convictionally believe. It's all to make us fearless, It's all to make us forward. It's all to make us faithful. Now there's this fourth overall appearance. And what are we to make of it? Or, maybe the better question is, what does it make of us? Is it not, as the song goes, that we are prone to wander? Lord, we feel it. Prone to leave the God we love. Prone to lose our purpose. Prone to not know what to do with ourselves. Uh, Let's go fishing. Prone to live at a distance from the risen Christ. Prone to letting... The things of this world, the cares of this world just swallow us up like a sea and keep us from Him. And yet, and yet, here we are, sticking it out onward and upward. Why? Why? You got to ask those kind of questions. Why are you still here? Because we know Him? Yes. But more than that, because He knows us. And He lives. So that no matter where we are, no matter how far off we are from Him, whatever our distance from Him, however far off course from Him, He is able to meet us right there and to speak to us. Children, you got any fish? (laughs) To speak to us and then to use us and then to excite us so that we're jumping off boats and then draw us into Him ashore again and again and again and again and He does it every day and every week throughout your life. The great churchman Mark Dever, who used to be an agnostic. One of the things he could not shake that played a part in his coming to Christ was this historical continuance of the apostolic church. It made no sense to him. You look at history, you look at what's been done to Christians, to, to, to the church that's true and pure and believing the gospel. You see what's done to those people? Do you see what was done to these men? How, given her sufferings, how, given her sorrows, does the church continue to live? What are we doing here? How is it that you today, Christian, keep on going, keep on living for Jesus? It's very wonderful. Jesus is alive. And He keeps living for us and through us. He keeps humbling us, keeps directing us, keeps promising us, keeps encouraging us, keeps empowering us, keeps inviting us, keeps confirming us, keeps profiting us. He keeps showing up For his people. We have no other explanation really. Than that Jesus is alive from the dead. And he loves us. So friend. If you're unbelieving this morning. Won't you be caught by Christ today? A fish out of water is a dead fish. But a soul in Christ is a living one. He died, he died to save you from your sins and lives that you might know that if you believe in him, you will be saved. You will be pulled out of the sea of God's wrath and pulled ashore. Into His saving and everlasting love. So there's the net. It is cast. I would just urge you with all my heart, all our hearts, hop in. Be driven into that net. And be saved. Beloved, let's not be slow to live mindful of the resurrection of Jesus. It's not just a truth for us to confess. It is a truth for us To apply. Every day, how might you apply the resurrection of Jesus? Today, and the next, and the next. I'll leave specifics to you and the Lord and just say this. Do not let a day go by without doing what you must, like Peter, to draw nearer to Jesus for spiritual profit and with full nets. One life to live, it will soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. So live on purpose. Applying the empty tomb will lead to quite a full life for Jesus. Let's do that. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we just ask that by the ministry of your Holy Spirit, you would now take what has been said and preach a better sermon to every heart, one that is above the ability of this poor man. Do your divine work. Spiritually profit your people. Help us to believe beyond the shadow of a doubt that you live and that you love us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.